32 counties, 32 questions. My name is Una. I'm Andrea. And this is United United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week's county is Cork, boy. And, And this week's question, show us the money. How can we make big tech pay tax? Let's go to Cork. The week that was, Andrea, loads of things happened this week. They did. Uh, The European Parliament was back in session and the Brexit MEPs were acting so maturely by turning their backs to Ode to Joy. What an anthem to turn your backs to. And just don't be there, you absolute doses. Yeah. Dose hauntus, I'd call them. So uh, that pettiness is just... Makes you feel, can't wait till Britain leaves the EU, which is obviously very unfair to all the people who voted Remain. But when you look at that kind of behaviour, it's just like, Ah, you can't tar everyone with that brush. Absolutely not. Poor Britain. I know, but at the same time, why are they, why are those people there? Like, they're certainly not turning their backs on the money they're getting for their salaries anyway. They're there for the power and the ego. And attention. And the attention. So let them... they're just dopes. In America, more details emerging from um, the detainment centres for uh, migrants, people uh, near the US border, which AOC is calling concentration camps. Uh, the photographs that were coming from there were just absolutely deplorable. And the stories of people not showering and kids in dirty nappies and not having access to clean clothes and proper food. It's just fucking disgusting. And um you know, I don't know what's going to happen, um, but the fact that a lot of people um, are really trying to drum up some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of energy over over really addressing this problem, you know, is, is hopeful in some ways. But I don't know, it just seems that like so many places in the US are so disconnected and the country's so big that this happening in near El Paso or whatever doesn't seem to resonate, you know, in Nebraska. Um, but, uh, you know, but, fair play to AOC anyway. But she was also saying it's the same people who, when they traced their name, got their name from when they landed on boats at Ellis Island. And mm. now they're the ones who are the ones who are so anti-migrants. It's like you have come from there. Yeah. Like, remember. Something needs to happen, Stat, but it's not going to happen with uh, Trump anyway. Um, something else uh, a little, well, much more amusing uh, was also going on in the States. Uh, our, this is the end of our conversation <laughs> of Straight Pride. What happened, Andrea? So the organisers of Straight Pride were all living their lives, being straight, wearing their MAGA hats, just, you know, catching some rays. And then the post arrives. They go out to their post and there was, don't you know the way in America they're all obsessed with like return addresses? So they got a package in the post that didn't have a return address. So the organisers all ring each other because when they shake it, it had a little bit of like, like it had something inside it. So they ring each other in a panic going, did you get this package? Did you get this package? So like they all got a package. So they get onto the FBI because they're like, we've got so much. Um, attention about our straight pride this is obviously someone who wants to like bomb us or whatever so the FBI come they close down all their blocks and get ready for to open these packages and when they open them <laughs> they're full of glitter <laughs> and uh, they also have all these Bible passages that are talking about love and inclusivity so it was just like you absolute doses like Joseph Hunters is obviously my word this week um, but like Shutting down blocks and everything. Scarlet for the FBI. Scarlet for straight pride also. Very Scarlet for straight pride. And actually, my friend is staying with me is uh, Canadian and he's from Calgary. And he's like, we kind of have a straight pride in Calgary. And I was like, what is it? And he's like, they celebrate cowboy culture. So it essentially is... Uh, white straight pride and he's like it is the most bananas thing they always leave the place but they were like we were there for the last one and it is bananas why these things need to go on you would have to wonder well I think a celebration of cowboy culture is okay yeah but not when you delve a bit deeper into it I don't know I was in this like um, town in Southwest Texas one's called Alpine and they had a cowboy poetry festival (laughs) of course you found a cowboy poetry festival (laughs) would you get away I think this is a different take on cowboy culture it's more like the straight white supremacy side of it rather than um, well, no to that. Then. No to that. Absolutely not. Another thing that happened this week was an Alabama woman, Marsha Jones, was shot in the stomach and charged with manslaughter um, because she was pregnant at the time and the baby died. So even the person who shot her 
got off and she was charged with manslaughter because she was should have been protecting her child and it brings up all the uh, questions about personhood and all the things that America are going through especially in Alabama um, but yeah she's uh, in prison at the moment that is absolute madness your weekly co-living update more madness uh, from this uh, co-living trend so there's this building um, on York Road in Dunleary that used to be an orphanage and it's kind of known locally as the bird's nest and it's being rebranded reinvented as a co-living space and they're calling it the orphanage which is just such a branding fail uh, the website is us, is up about you know these beautiful spaces and like lovely you know uh, posters and decor and everything do they not have a dictionary like, would you not Google what an orphanage... Well, check this out. So um, the Irish Times has a story on it where the spokesperson said that it reflected the history of the place and that, quote, when you are there, it will become your adopted home. Oh, my N-O. But it has 4K smart TV with Serview, so... Anyway, I just don't understand these folks who are coming up with this absolute nonsense. And of course... Uh, Dunleary was also the focus of co-living recently when Richard Barrett's uh, company um, Bartra Capital was trying to do that massive uh, scheme 208 unit scheme with um, kitchens for like 40 people Uh, so Dunleary get a grip How was your week, Andrea? You may detect a slight note of hoarseness in my voice. I have returned from Glastonbury, reluctantly, I might add. I'm going to talk about uh, how great it was later in the podcast. But how was your weekend while I was away in a field? My weekend was stunning and I'm surprised that I don't have a hoarse voice because it was V-biz. I embraced the pride world. Um, I was at a Vogue ball as a judge on Friday, which was the best experience I've had in so long I just love the whole Vogue ball culture and it was just seeing everyone just living their best lives and letting their true selves come out and it was just really the energy in the room was phenomenal and I think snaps to Machia for organising it was really well organised and um, yeah I think there should be a future of Vogue balls in Ireland. Brill. Um, and then obviously the big day I was at the parade it was very the march you mean the protest <laughs> oh yeah well I saw the protest as well um, and had many conversations with people about it but it was very uh, it was very poignant I every year I cry at pride as I've told you before literally the minute all the lovers from Kylie comes on and bawling I literally played it all the way into the protest march parade um, and then so I was already highly strung on emotions and then next of all I saw Will St. Ledger coming down at the front of the parade and the ACT UP team and it, they did a very poignant stop and it was just amazing to when you have all the people arguing against what the Pride Parade March protest should be to have that at the front of it and then it, you're kind of like guys it's here this is what the message is mm. um, and obviously mainstreaming and visibility is very important and protest it and all that jazz but it was, I thought it was very poignant and then um, all the HIV um visibility groups behind it and so it was led by all the groups so I think the heart of the Pride Parade was very much in the right place from what I could feel anyway. Deadly. Um, And then what? Oh then the Cock Destroyers. Oh my God they were phenomenal. Um, They were at Davina and uh, Victoria's party in Vicker Street and it was so amazing to see these women being just so open with their sexuality and also um, it was very open it was very it was very impairing I thought and I suppose there's questions around porn a lot of the time and I think they really showed that porn can be um, the you can have the power with it but also how the gay men essentially turned these two porn stars into a meme who have now become two really big allies for um, LGBT they were going around with the U uh, equals U t-shirts they were uh, really I suppose bring a lot of the messaging through to their um, audiences etc which is again very important so it was really nice to see Thank you for your pride report <laughs> That ends <laughs> <laughs> But now it's about you our Patreon is ongoing we are shipping the fantastic rewards this week please get on board patreon.com forward slash United Ireland we really need your support 
to uh, keep this podcast going and we're so grateful for people who've already done that so help us thank you Andrea hit me with your cork facts okay firstly it's the real capital apparently uh, known as the rebel county then it did is you look up some cork propaganda site <laughs> to get these you have no idea where I go on these cork fact trails <laughs> um, it's the third largest city behind Dublin and Belfast and it's so gas because they're always the third something or the second something especially when Cork Harbour is the second largest natural harbour after Sydney which, mm. I, which I never knew uh, I never know any of these facts uh, but they have got one thing they are the largest county in Ireland fair well, of course it's fair because it's a fact. <laughs> um, now, this is quite interesting. The first potato was planted here by Sir Walter Raleigh. And God damn it, is there anything potatoes cannot turn their hand to? Chips, mashed potato, crisps. Like, it's a wonder. Potatoes, potatoes. are my favourite food. They are unbelievable. Yeah. It's like I no survived for four years in DCU on mashed potatoes and gravy. In you the can canteen. see why, as Irish people, the famine happened because we loved them so much. <laughs> Excellent work. More cork facts, please. Cove was Titanic's last port to call. Yeah. Um, and it was left out of the movie by uh, also known as Titanic. Um, uh, but also, Cove is known as the teardrop of Ireland. Maybe related or not who knows I don't think it is so. the narrowest and oldest public bridge still in use is in Glanworth that's not really interesting but it seems to be something. it's factual so it's it factual yeah. yeah the first Ford factory outside of America was built in Cork where Henry Ford's ancestors were from and maybe um, Trump could look up some of that history about how it doesn't all have to be within his weird borders yeah it's the home of Barry's Tea my favourite Irish brand apart from Curabini. Hi, James. Um, and I will, yeah, means no. Okay. That's a fact that's been touted on the web. Uh, okay, this, like, sorry. How is this real life? And I, how have I not been there? Cork has a butter museum. Yeah, I've heard this. I have never visited the butter museum. And what does butter go great with? Potatoes. Yeah, it makes sense. Oh, my God. Salty Irish goodness. And finally, my favourite politician, apart from... Oh, I can forget. Uh, Simon Harris. Uh, <laughs> Michal Martin is from there. You do love Michal. Hi, Michal. Our county rep this week is a brilliant Cork woman. Louise O'Neill is a multi-award winning author whose novels Only Ever Yours, Asking For It and Almost Love capture kind of bristling, sometimes terrifying energy, which is often rooted in toxic relationships, be those relationships between other women, between peers, within a community or between lovers. She is also fiercely proud of being from Cork. Uh, it's where she lives, in Clonakilty. Um, and she did text me uh, last week saying if you don't have me on your Cork episode you are dead to me <laughs> So, but that's not the main reason that she is the county rep this week she's a brilliant person and here she is repping her county I'm from a small town called Clonakilty in West Cork and I am almost obnoxiously proud of where I'm from. My boyfriend is from Clare and he's constantly telling me, OK, Louise, we get it. You're from Cork. Um, but the reason why I'm so proud of being from Cork is, I suppose, well, firstly, it's just so beautiful. Like the beaches are absolutely spectacular here. Um, the food is amazing. There's a really great, you know, slow food movement here. Um, incredible farmers markets and you know, obviously the Clonakilty, the famed Clonakilty um, black pudding. And I suppose there's such a, I think the pace of life here is just, is slower um, and more enjoyable and easier. And people don't get too stressed about things. And I suppose having lived in Dublin, having lived in New York, um, I think I really enjoy that slower pace of life. Um, and the people here are hilarious um, I think I you know I love I love the accent I love that kind of sing-song accent in Cork I love the sense of humour um, I really enjoy I think the community um, from you know that I suppose is built up in, in people um, from Cork particularly around our 
you know, inferiority complex in comparison to Dublin, I find that very amusing um, because, you know, this sense of, well, we're the real capital and just this fury and frustration um, when we're relegated to uh, the second city in Ireland because we know that we're the best, even if people in Dublin do not want to accept that. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely the best county um, in Ireland. And, you know, I don't want to go here. I don't want to be that person. But it is also the biggest county in Ireland. And I'm sorry to have to tell you, but size matters. So up Cork, Corky Gaboo. And yeah, we're the best. This week's question is, show us the money. How can we make big tech pay tax? So when we talk about big tech companies, we're often focusing on the ones in Dublin, Facebook, Google, Twitter, all those heads. But we talk less about Apple in Cork. And that has huge importance to Irish society and citizens and taxpayers because of this Apple tax case. You may be familiar with it cropping up the news a couple of years ago, but it is ongoing and it has massive ramifications, not just for Ireland and the money that we are owed um, as a country, but also for our future tax setup here in a global context. You might hear an awful lot about the corporate tax rate in Ireland and how this is a reason that multinationals flock to us and the reason that we have such a massive global centre of tech companies here. But what relevance does Cork play in this story? So Apple is based in Cork. It's in Holly Hill. It's been there for nearly 40 years. So it's far outlasted a lot of the newer tech companies that are situated in Dublin, for example. It employs around between 5,500 to 6,000 people, so massive workforce. And the stuff that it does down in Cork is kind of in and around customer care, logistics for product supply, distribution, sales support, organizing shipping, it has responsibility for iTunes, Apple Care tech support, and it also has a manufacturing plant for IMAX. Around half the employees are Irish, and there's over 80 nationalities working for Apple in Cork. So what's the deal with the Apple tax thing? Okay, so here's a timeline. In June 2014, the European Commission began investigating Apple's tax arrangements in Ireland. And this is after there was kind of a US investigation into it as well in 2013. In January 2015, Apple told the European Commission that it has closed its double Irish tax mechanism. We're going to get back uh, into that in a second. That's what's called a BEPS. PS, a base erosion and profit shifting tax mechanism, which is basically what it sounds like. But we'll talk about that in a bit. Then in August 2016, the European Commission announced that Ireland had been given illegal tax benefits to Apple and that kind of amounted to state aid. And so they ordered Apple to pay 13 billion euro to Ireland. The next month after that, September 2016, a majority in the Dáil, thank you Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, decided to reject that the back taxes be paid and those back taxes could amount to up to 20 billion euro. In November 2016, the Irish government basically appealed the Commission's ruling um, on the basis that basically tax policies are sovereign and they're up to individual states to make and that they're excluded from EU treaties and that the EU couldn't be kind of making these kind of rulings against Ireland. Apple also appealed the ruling. And the reason they did that is basically if Apple had to pay all of this tax to Ireland, um, if it was indeed kind of this unfair thing that amounted to state aid, the ramifications for multinationals based in Ireland would be huge because obviously a part of the reason, big reason that they're here is because of our super low corporate tax um, figure, 12.5%. And all of the other kind of tax mechanisms that they can use to basically not pay very much tax. Then in September 2018, Ireland had to recover the 13.1 billion euro from Apple plus 1.2 billion euro interest. But it's being held in kind of a third party account until they figure out what to do with it. This year, May 2019, the cost of the lawyers on the case was revealed and the Irish government has paid around 7.1 million to various lawyers and other experts. 
uh, regarding the Apple tax case. Uh, 2.7 million of that is to barristers, which is something that obviously always makes us question our career choices. Um, And now the European Commission is also looking into Google's tax arrangements here. So this kind of languishing in a random account or with a third party before people figure out what happens with all the appeals means that Ireland has this huge amount of money that it should according to the European Commission, be collecting as tax. And if Ireland doesn't collect these billions and billions of euros in tax, that, you know, what will happen after those appeals and that it should be doing that. And that globally, countries are pretty pissed off with how Ireland organises its benefits for uh, multinationals, particularly with the tax sector. So let's get back to the double Irish explainer. Like, why aren't these companies paying the same tax that they would be in other places. So the double Irish is a tax loop that allows tech companies to shield their profits from tax by making their intellectual property tax deductible and calling it an intangible asset. So to break that down, so let's say a tech company based in Ireland sells a piece of software to a French customer, for example, and their profit on that piece of software sold in a shop is 90%. So that tech company wants to eradicate the profit so it doesn't pay tax on it. So it charges its French subsidiary 90% in intellectual property royalties. That 90% has to be paid where the intellectual property is legally housed, and that would be Ireland. So obviously tech companies want, you know, ultimately the intellectual property to be based somewhere where they could pay the least tax, like a random tax haven like Cayman Islands or Bermuda or something. But they can't do that because a lot of European countries don't have uh, tax treaties or deals with those tax havens. But of course, European countries have deals with Ireland. And Ireland, in turn, has a shitload of tax treaties with loads of different places. And that allows that hypothetical 90% profit to be sent to a tax haven without any Irish taxation. So it's kind of a route around. So we're allowing tech companies to bounce their profits from elsewhere through Ireland because their companies are based here and therefore their intellectual property is based here. And then on to absolute tax havens without us taxing them. And that's the double Irish. And this is being used to shield around a trillion dollars for US multinationals between 2004 and 2008. It's kind of the largest um, tax loophole, corporate tax loophole that has existed. And Apple has been using this since the 1980s in Ireland. Now, the EU, having gotten pretty sick of this, forced Ireland to shut that tax loophole down kind of late 2014, early 2015. But we've given tech companies until January 2020, with some companies, to close off that double Irish finally, because we're just so sound slash really, really scared that if we stop all of these like really uh, very attractive tax deals, that the companies will actually just leave. The guy who's kind of the architect of this loophole mechanism is Fergal O'Rourke. He is Mary O'Rourke's uh, cousin. He's also the managing partner of PricewaterhouseCoopers in Ireland. But how much is, like, how much money are we actually uh, not collecting in tax? And what does this money really mean? I mean, when you think of a figure like 14 billion, it's just an incredible number. In a later podcast, we're going to get into universal basic income and whether that's a reality as automation, um, you know, kind of takes hold much more than it already is. So let's look at this 14 billion Apple tax. If you want to pay a universal basic income salary to every person in Donegal between the age of 15 and 24, let's say, you could pay all of them, which is 15,000 people, 3,000 euro every month for 466 years. That's how much 14 billion euro is. So this is all part of a broader conversation about Ireland's corporate tax rate, which is frequently criticised by everyone as diverse as Trump, to the US Democrats, to European leaders, the European Commission. And this week, the mid-year tax receipt figures were published uh, in Ireland, showing that income tax generated 10.5 billion. That generally makes up around 40% of the government's tax take. VAT generated 7.6 billion and corporation tax generated 4.2 billion. To discuss the whole corporate tax rate vibe, we have Dara Doyle, who is the Dublin Bureau Chief of Bloomberg. Hi, Dara, how's it going? Hey, Una, how are you? Good. 
Now, we're constantly hearing about all of these things about Ireland's corporate tax rate. I never know which side, corporate tax rate or corporation tax rate, which... Uh, either either are fine. I would okay, go corporate cool. tax rate. Um, and it's like this kind of magic figure of 12.5%. Like, what does this mean for companies who want to set up here? And how much of a bonus or benefit is it compared to elsewhere? So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the corporate tax rate 12.5% is probably the cornerstone of Irish economic policy to the extent that we actually have one. It, you know, um, I mean, companies would go back and forth and government would go back and forth about how important the corporate tax rate is in attracting companies like Google and Facebook. Um, and it's probably changed a bit over the years, but it's still fair to say that the corporate tax rate is a huge draw for a lot of the big US companies to Ireland and European companies. So I suppose to kind of give you a bit of context, the average corporate tax rate in the rest of the EU is around 20%. Places like France and Germany are looking at around 30%. Um, and, you know, the comparison in the US is around 27%. So plainly, uh, the corporate tax rate is a key factor. I mean, I think it's probably the lowest in the Eurozone. The only figure I can find lower at, around Europe at the moment is Bosnia, of all places. It's got a, a corporate tax rate around 10%. So clearly, the corporate tax um, uh, factor is, is, is still a key sort of influencer in, in drawing a lot of these companies here. Right. And what does Ireland get out of this? Because if we're not collect, collecting huge amounts of tax, apart from, you know, employment and obviously um, a lot of uh, people employed in big tech, let's say, for example, aren't necessarily from Ireland, they're, they're moving here. Like what does Ireland get out of it? And is it is the juice worth the squeeze, as they say? So, I mean, you know, Ireland gets massive uh, benefit from the U.S. multinational presence here, um, which you know underpinned by the corporate tax rate. So, to give you a sense of context, about one fifth of the entire Irish workforce is employed in U.S. firms. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a huge number of people, and that's what, you know whatever about the corporate tax rate uh, take, which is which is you know huge in its own right, as we've already talked about. The fact is that the, you know the, um, these companies are employing people, and in turn, those those people are paying income tax rates. Now we have some of the highest income tax rates in the world, so it's generating a huge amount in revenue for the Irish taxpayer, and um, which provides things like you know schools, social welfare, hospitals. So that's just the employment element alone, the income tax level. And of course, it's not. True to say that that Ireland doesn't get much in terms of corporate tax rate. You've already said yourself to about four billion. So, I mean, the point is that if these companies, it, 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 we don't know for sure, but it's, it's it's probably okay to say that these, a lot of these companies wouldn't be here at the corporate tax rate. So essentially, you know, take a very extreme example, your corporate tax rate would be around zero if you didn't have this rate or, sorry, a lot less than it is at the moment. So by bringing these companies in, we get a huge amount of corporate tax. Now, you can argue that with sort of better than aimer strategy that other countries aren't getting this, but is Ireland benefiting from the 12.5% rate? Absolutely, in terms of direct employment, uh, in terms of income tax that people pay, in terms of corporate tax take. So absolutely, it's a huge boon uh, to, our, uh, to our economic system. I mean, it keeps schools afloat. Hospitals are open, I would say. Huge factor. Right. It's interesting then that the income tax kind of generated is like over double the corporation or corporate tax level generated. So the direct employment is kind of of passing on the tax take to the employee as opposed to the company in a weird way. Sorry, I'm not sure I understand your point. Like so, because so many people are directly employed, the government gets Mm. more income tax from the businesses, but it obviously they're benefiting from the corporate tax rate, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that would be one of the, the arguments that some people would make against having a relatively low corporate tax rate in that you have to get tax revenue from somewhere. So therefore, if you're not going to tax um, uh, companies very heavily, then you're going to have to increase the tax burden on the on the, on, on the employees or things like VAT because tax has to come from somewhere. Mm. But again, remember, it's like uh, there's very people tend to like simplistic analysis or typical answers in these things and it doesn't tend to be because remember if it wasn't for the 12.5% tax uh, rate a lot of these companies wouldn't be here therefore there would be much less corporate tax therefore you would have to tax those people who are already in work at a much higher rate in order to provide the same level of goods and services so the idea that if you somehow you know massively or, or significantly raise the corporate tax rate that would re- release the remove the burden on employees uh, that, that probably isn't quite right. I mean, you could do it to an extent, you can maybe move the corporate tax rate up a little bit, maybe generate a little bit more corporate tax, but you've also got to be, be careful that you don't force these or you know, push these companies out of Ireland because then remember the corporate tax rate from these companies goes to zero 
Um, plus, they're not employing people, therefore they're paying less tax. So the employment base shrinks and you have to tax people in work. Those people who are left in work at a higher rate to generate the same level of tax. So, like, I mean, I suppose what people like Mike Williams would call you the butterfly effect. You've got to be very careful with kind of tax changes that you might have, you know, very kind of, you know, some people would lower the aspiration to tax companies at a higher rate. That's grand. But these things have unintended consequences. So, for example, these companies could move out. Employment falls, unemployment rises. You've got to tax people at a higher rate to generate the same amount of services. So, you know, I think, you know, there is a bit of a butterfly effect with this whole thing. Mm. When, when you read like international coverage of um, Ireland in terms of its tax rates and so on, oftentimes it's, it can be mentioned in the same breath as places that we would have traditionally seen as shorthand for like tax havens, like Bermuda or Cayman Islands or that kind of sure. thing. Like how much of a pariah in many ways has Ireland become in a global context because obviously there's a you know we are essentially undercutting other nations with our corporate tax rate I mean it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good question I think that it's fair to say that yeah a lot of other countries particularly France and Germany um, are not particularly keen on our tax rate I mean, we'll go back to the to the bailout um, and Sarkozy at that point tried to force Ireland to raise its corporate tax rate as a price of the bailout we managed to resist that um, so I think it's fair to say that yeah it, it doesn't doesn't necessarily do our, our international reputation a lot of good but you know I suppose there is another argument on the other side I mean any country is free to reduce its corporate tax rate and Ireland would argue that we have a very straight system we have a system of 12.5% uh, rate um, any country is free to lower its corporate tax rate to, to match ours. And in fact, what we see, I think there's also an element of hypocrisy as, as well around this a lot of the time, because what we're seeing across Europe is that actually, okay, a lot of politicians complain about companies not paying enough tax, but actually the trend for corporate tax rate across Europe is, is, is going down. Um, just to just give you an idea, I think about five, ten years ago, the corporate tax rate across Europe is now about 30%. Now it's around about 20%. So I think to a large extent, um, you know, Ireland is like a fairly easy scapegoat. You can blame Ireland for, you know, having a 12.5% rate. Um, so it's a fairly easy kind of kind of country to knock. But I mean, Ireland would argue that, look, any country is free to do what we can do, what we've done. Um, and, and there's no issue. And the second element that you have uh, come back from the Irish government is that, you know, we have a fairly straightforward sort of tax rate, 12.5% rate, that's what you pay. The argument is that a country like France, which has a, a rate of around 30%, what they do is allow their companies to do a lot of tax write-offs. So effectively, they reduce their effective tax rate to a lot to, to, to levels below our 12.5% rate. So, um, so I mean, you've got you've got definitely kind of counterweights to that argument, and kind of going back and forth. I mean, and if you're asking where it's heading, like I think we've sort of resisted. I mean, I've been probably covering this area for about twenty years, and every year, you know, you hear this idea that Ireland's going to be forced to increase its corporate tax rate, and the reality is, it's never happened. And I don't see it happening anytime soon. I, I think our rate, you know, it's fairly safe. Some people say that's not a good thing. Other people say that's a good thing. But if you're asking me what I think happened our corporate tax rate, it's probably going to be safe for the next five, ten years at least. It's interesting that you're saying that because also, you know, as you've said, like this constant threat that, you know, the European Commission mm -hmm. is going to undo it or yeah. Trump is going to like try and pull all of the American companies back to the US. Mm -hmm. um, and that idea that setting our own tax rate, um, you know, that's a kind of a, a thing that a country can do itself. And that yeah. seems to form the basis of the appeal to the European Commission over the Apple tax case that this isn't state aid. It's just us doing the tax the way we want to do it. What are the biggest threats to undoing it? Well, just on that, I think I, I, that's a slight misunderstanding of what's kind of going on with the Apple case, actually. And I think that the background here is, is if we go back to just, is a 12.5% rate going to stay or is it safe? Yes, it is, to an extent. Because, you know, the, your EU doesn't have any power to force Ireland to change the corporate tax rate. And actually, you've seen you've seen less drumbeating around Ireland's corporate tax rate over the last sort of five six years. Um, less people try, attacking it, trying to get Ireland to increase the corporate tax rate. So what the Commission has done is they've kind of found another hole in the Irish tax system. So in, in the Apple case, what they said is that the issue isn't Ireland's corporate tax rate 12.5%, right? What they're saying is that Ireland gave Apple a sweetheart deal on tax that wasn't available to other countries, right. or sorry, other companies. So the issue isn't, isn't, there was no sense that the corporate tax rate 
was the issue or is the issue in the Apple tax rate. The question is, is that Apple get a sweetheart deal that wasn't available to other countries? Now, what's interesting about this, I think, is that what you're seeing is a, is a kind of a recognition at a European level and a global level that Ireland's corporate is probably going to be free to, to, uh, to set its corporate tax rate around 12.5%. But is there other ways that they can undermine or attack our system you know you know and again some people will say that's absolutely fair enough um other people will say you know we should be left to set our own kind of tax policy so i think it's important to 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 to, to just un, un, unpick what's actually gone on in the Apple case, because this is not an attack on our corporate tax rate. Right. It's an attack on our system that we employed. Ireland said there was no sweetheart deal for Apple. Apple said there was no sweetheart deal for for uh, for it. Um, the commission obviously argues you know differently, and we'll hear the appeal, which will start at the end of the year, I, I would imagine, and that will, that, will, that will form that. But I would not, I'd be careful about drawing any implications from the Apple tax case for the wider sort of tax system of 12.5%. Right. That's not an issue here. And what impact did closing that, you know, this double Irish tax loop that we've kind of heard about a lot over the last like five, 10 years, what impact did closing that have? And were there different systems set up to replace it? Yeah, I mean, I like I am no expert in international tax law by no means, thank God. I don't think it's, it's an area <laughs> I, I want to spend my life. Um, but but you have like, organizations, I think it's like maybe Oxfam, for example, who point to similar sort of systems um, or similar tax squeezes that the companies have introduced to replace double Irish. Um, and also what we saw was that Michael Noonan introduced a thing called the patent box, which allowed um, uh, which allowed companies to to have a lower tax rate on goods which are patented here, which a lot of, again, other EU countries weren't necessarily thrilled about. Um, and what we've seen, because of some of the, tax, again, unintended consequences, what we've seen from some of the tax changes that uh, Ireland has introduced in response to some international pressure is slightly unexpected. So. Um, there's a lot of theorising about what's behind huge boosting in corporation tax that we've seen over the last two or three years. And some of the speculation is that companies like Apple have moved some of their um, what's called intellectual properties uh, onshore to Ireland and now we're able to tax that. We're getting this massive boom um, in corporate tax receipts partly because of that. So, you know, um, these companies are, you know, uh, how should we say, inventive when it comes to minimising their tax bills, which is, you know, again, some people might not like that, but their duties, they would say to their shareholders and that's their job. So, you know, I would not expect Double Irish um, to have any kind of massive impact in terms of an, an exodus of US companies out, out of Ireland. Um, you know, what might be sort of more interesting is, so, for, for example, like if Trump was to decide that he, that he was going to cut the, the U.S. corporate tax rate much further, um, then you could see some U.S. companies sort of retrenching back to the U.S. to an extent. One interesting possibility is, you know, after Brexit, will, you know, will there be the Singapore and the Thames that's been talked about? Like, will the U.K. go with this model of a very low tax rate in order to attract investment? Um, this kind of thing. So that's another kind of possibility that we'll see. Um, certainly at the OECD levels, there's moves around the digital tax, which aren't as successfully you know, frustrated uh, with the help of the people like the Sweden and the UK and the Netherlands. But we're going to see a bit more sort of pressure on that, I think, come down the line. But, you know, look, there is this tendency, you know, to think of, you know, apocalypse now and, and, and the coming for our tax rate. But the reality is over the last sort of 10, 15 years, we've, we've kind of weathered bigger threats to corporate tax rate. Um, so I would suspect that in, if we're having this conversation in three to five years, it'll be similar enough as it is, as it is now, you know. Again, you can have different ideological views on that. Maybe think, people think it's a good thing um, that these companies are forced to pay more tax. Um, but in terms of what's actually going to happen, I suspect we won't see huge. We won't see any difference in twelve point five percent rate in five years or so. It's interesting when you talk about kind of a post Brexit Britain and how they'll try and um, you know keep their economy afloat. Yeah. But that you know why doesn't everybody just do this? I mean, if if you know France and Germany are annoyed with Ireland's twelve point five percent rate, or Trump is you know blowing a lot of hot air about it, why don't they just do it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about the domestic politics of every country to, you know, to to, to tell you exactly why each country pursues its own strategy. I suspect, it's only a suspicion, that um, politically um, these countries tend to have a much stronger left-wing tradition than we do in Ireland. And therefore, there would be much um, less, there would be much more resistance to the idea of cutting corporate corporate tax rate for big for big companies. So there might be political hesitation to, to do that. Um, we don't have a tradition of a very strong left wing here. We've got a consensus driven uh, 
political system mostly. Um, and, you know, even, I mean, what's really interesting about Ireland, even Sinn Féin, which like 10, 15 years ago was saying we should increase our corporate tax rate. Even Sinn Féin now is happy with the 12.5% rate. So I suspect that we're looking at differences in, in the political system. Um, there's not much left wing here. There's not much of a resistance. We haven't seen any kind of yellow vest movement here. So I suspect that these countries would be more reluctant to do it on the basis of, of sort of a political, you know, of, of a political judgment. And, and that's fine. Um, I suppose the point I would kind of trying to make is that, you know, a lot of the time it's, you know, if, if you want to raise more tax, uh, so I know people get carried away with the ideology of this kind of stuff. They, they t throw around the term Thatcherite or Laffer curve or whatever it is. But the reality is in a situation like Ireland, by cutting the corporate tax rate, we generate a huge, more, a huge bigger amount of corporate, ta of corporate tax than we otherwise would have. I mean, all the signs of that, that is the case. So it's easy to have sort of, sort of stuck ideological positions in this thing, but again, it tends to be much more complicated than that. Like if you want to raise more tax, sometimes lowering the tax rate uh, um, can be the answer to do that. Of course, we wouldn't be very, you know, we wouldn't be in favour of other countries lowering their, their, their tax rate because then they'd become more attractive to your Googles and your Facebooks and maybe we lose that investment ourselves. So I think we're pretty happy with the situation where Germany, France have got 30% rate, we've got 12.5% rate. Um, and I think we'd be, we'd be quite concerned if the UK did adopt a strategy of, you know, cutting their tax rate to quite a low rate. Mm. And interestingly, I suppose, without wanting to kind of, you know, bore you on this one, I mean, a key issue for Northern Ireland up to Brexit was Northern Ireland wanted the power to set its own corporate tax rate. They wanted the power to set their tax rate at 12.5% to compete with the South. So, I mean, that's another thing that's been lost in the Brexit debate. But who knows? It's something we could see in the future. Mm. And finally, because this um, this episode of the podcast is about Cork and we're, we're talking about Apple down there and the Apple tax case. Yeah. Where are we at now with that? Is it kind of languishing in appeal purgatory? I know Apple said that their appeal, I think, would take something like five years. Like, yeah. what happens next? And are we ever going to see that 14 billion euro plus interest yeah that's, that's a great question um so at the moment you know it's you follow deadline which is resting on our account um apple has had to give us the 14 billion and we are now managing that in a what's called an escrow account so literally it's, it's a it's an account and we're, we're holding on to the, to the cash at the moment um what will happen that money will be decided by the court of appeal um the case, as I said, I think is due to take, to start in a bit towards the end of the year. Mm. Um, if Ireland and Apple are, are lose that case, bizarrely, we're you know the ultimate winner because we you know win the fourteen billion. Uh, we get to take the fourteen billion. Uh, if if we win that case, we get the fourteen billion back. Now the signs have been quite mixed from the court for appeal. Belgium, for example, had some success in arguing against um, some similar cases and and you know uh so so there is some signs that uh, that we could win the case i.e we would have to give the money back to, to to apple but in a in a weird way you could argue it's lose lose or win win i mean if we lose the case we get to keep the 14 billion if we win the case then we get to hand back the 14 billion um so a lot of people though i suppose something else that's so interesting about this a lot of people are saying well why is ireland fighting this case because you know after all like we should take this 14 billion and we could build six children's hospitals and we could you know end homelessness and this and this kind of thing but again i suppose i wanted to to, to point out that, that there is another factor that the irish government would sort of talk about sort of privately so w what the government is doing here is they're sending a signal i think to the all the firms in ireland uh or the us firms in ireland to say that look we will stand by you in the in these in these situations we will work with you we will try and do our best for you to win the case these kind of cases if they come down the tracks the logic being that that then then in terms gives them confidence to invest in ireland and to stay here because you know because you know the, the government they've got confidence in the in the political system and the support that it would get from that they would get from the irish government so again, there's, it's not there's not a huge amount of easy answers in a way the irish government is probably like almost the best outcome for them is if they you know if they were to lose the case we get to keep the 14 billion but at the same time you stood side by shoulder by shoulder with apple so you've sent a signal to, to the u.s company that you that you will do that now look there's definitely you know um winds of change blowing we've seen a couple of cases that the uh, revenue has taken against one against a company called perigo uh, they're chasing over a billion euros from Paragos and there's a couple of smaller cases. So there is the sense that the, that the revenue authorities are taking a more hardline approach. We don't know exactly why, but it's definitely an area to, to, to watch, I think. Dara, the Dublin Bureau Chief of Bloomberg, that is the most enlightening conversation about tax I have ever had. <laughs> I wouldn't imagine it's a huge, you know, it's a huge area you've you know, spent on, but uh, listen, I, hope it, I hope it was useful anyway. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care, Ian.
So fave bits this week. Obviously, my fave bit is going to be the five nights I spent at Glastonbury. I think it was my eighth Glastonbury. It is my favourite festival. It is the mothership. It's actually not just my favourite festival. It's one of my favourite places in the world to be. And there was something about this year's that felt very magical, even more so than it normally does. And I was trying to unpack why that is. Okay, so obviously the weather was amazing. It was actually a bit too hot. It was about 31, 32 on the Saturday. Oh my God. So Uh I was very much in the shade uh, for the duration of it. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Um, So, yeah, but like, okay, so I was trying to think and obviously... Glastonbury is just very different to other festivals, even though most other festivals in a field just copy it. I mean, even down to like the signage and all that kind of stuff, they copy elements of it. And so when you go to Glastonbury, it's very difficult to go to other festivals that are kind of similar to it. But it just, it was really interesting. I went to see this talk that Michael Evis did in one of the acoustics tents on one of the days. And he was just kind of talking about, um, you know, the history of the festival. He's 83 now and has passed the baton on for the most part to Emily Evis, his daughter, um, to to book a lot of the festival, although he still has, you know, a lot of um, input into it. And there are people working um, you know, managing stages and all that kind of stuff who've been who've been working for the festival for like 40 years. And he was talking about um, Julian Temple's new film, which is about uh, Ibiza. And that premiered in one of the cinemas in Glastonbury, this kind of drive-in cinema uh, stage they have uh, on the Wednesday night. And Michael Eva said he was watching this film about the history of Ibiza and how he felt that, you know, Ibiza's really lost its way. And he was talking about how Ibiza doesn't necessarily have a moral purpose and that might sound very kind of highfalutin or whatever but the connotation is that Glastonbury does you know it does have this moral purpose it has this thing that is much bigger than just you know booking loads of bands and a promoter making loads of money it costs about 40 million uh, pounds to put the festival on and their ticket take is around 50 million so and they give about 2 or 3 million a year to charities Oxfam WaterAid Greenpeace and so on um, so they're not in it to make a load of money they have about £10 million in cash reserves for contingencies based on how the cost of the festival fluctuates year on year because of weather issues and logistics and all that kind of stuff but that idea of something having a moral purpose um, beyond profit uh, really you know is intrinsic to Glastonbury and you could be cynical about that, I suppose. But when you're there, uh, you know, the setting is so magical. Obviously, the history around, you know, Glastonbury Tour and it being the reputed site of, you know, the Isle of Avalon and King Arthur and all that kind of crack. But the um, focus this year on environmental stuff and on climate justice was really brought home by how scorching the, the weather was. You know, this is apparently June is the... Uh, hottest month on record ever on this planet <laughs> according to kind of um, European uh, science data stuff I was reading yesterday they had an Extinction Rebellion um, protest on the Thursday from the park stage and, and a march that proceeded through the site. Greta Thunberg was there. David Attenborough gave a surprise talk on the uh, Pyramid stage, the main stage about his upcoming BBC series they banned single-use plastic, meaning that everybody had a refillable bottle. There were dozens of um, water taps site-wide. Um, the waste around the site, I know there's been some kind of photographs or whatever of like, you know, stuff all over the ground. Obviously, you're going to get that when you have nearly a quarter of a million people um, on a site for, for five days. There was markedly less waste um, and certainly hardly any plastic waste anywhere that I could see. Emily Evis said that 99.3% of the tents were brought home. Um, Same as Kaleidoscope. Yeah, yeah, which was really fantastic. And when people were talking about uh, photographs of like tents left a glass screen, they're like, oh, millennials, la la la. It's like the average age, the highest age group of people who go to Glastonbury is 39. So it's not like a load of, like there aren't, you know, bajillions of like 16 year olds or whatever. Another thing that I really love about Glastonbury um, and it just brings it home when you look at Irish festivals is the lack of advertising and branding across the site. They All of the different bars just have their own names. So like, you know, Bread and Roses or the Stonebridge Bar. And um, they don't have these massive, ugly, you know, Heineken si- signs everywhere, Smirnoff signs everywhere. 
And when you look at the kind of obnoxious branding that so many Irish festivals have and outdoor gigs have, it just annoys me so much. Like you're walking around trying to be in a magical place and then there's this massive drinks brand signage everywhere. Um, you know, I see that as like pollution on my you know weekend that I want to escape from. And I also don't think it really serves the brand. Like we know there's Heineken in a cup. Like you don't necessarily need to have these billboards everywhere. Um, and also with like vape brands and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it just really irritates me and Glastow just doesn't have that so you do feel very contained in this setting and then obviously there's kind of the uniqueness of the performances look festivals across Europe can kind of get to cookie cutter stage um, at this point you know everybody's on this kind of touring merry-go-round the same lineups in different orders are showing up everywhere and that is kind of true of Glastonbury as well like a lot of the big headliners will be at other festivals um, and a lot of the, the bands further down the bill will be at other festivals but you do get these performances um, you know a type of production a type of stage design uh, and moments that you don't get anywhere else Stormzy's show on the Friday night was absolutely phenomenal you know just him coming out in this flak jacket or the stab proofs vest that Banksy designed the unbelievable stage show that he put on I heard someone describe it as a one man Olympic opening ceremony like it was really incredible um, you know Kylie bringing out Nick Cave um, Christine and the Queens sang Heroes um, there were so many gigs over the weekend that were just phenomenal uh, Camasee Washington was probably my highlight of the, of the whole weekend absolutely mind blowing show so I have to say the decompression um, is probably the hardest I've ever <laughs> found. <laughs> and um, what's also kind of mad is, you know, next year is the 50th year and everybody's saying how brilliant Glastonbury looked on TV and all these kind of different viral moments like that kid, uh, did, you know, rapping with Dave and stuff like that, that the demand will be even higher. You know, they're going to knock it out of the park for the lineup next year. Um, so, you know, the, the hunt will be on for people trying to get tickets. I think there was um, three million people registered for the 200,000 tickets um, last year. So it's going to be it's going to be a tough one for people. I think we should do how to do Glastonbury as an episode because I, I have the f- absolute terrifying fear of it. And I love festivals and I feel like I'd love it, but I'm absolutely afraid of it. It is a little intimidating considering how big it is. You know, there's this great um, website called Glastonbury Map Overlay and you can take the size of Glastonbury and drop it onto any kind That's of map. That's not going to make me feel better. That's going to make me feel more terrified. <laughs> but when you put it on, to- when you put the site map on top of Dublin, it stretches from O'Connell Bridge to Rathmines. So that's kind of the... the I don't like leaving St. William Street. (laughs) That's going to be problematic. But it was just fantastic. And, you know, uh, you just feel so grateful when you're having that magical experience. And it's not just the music. It's the set design. The stage design is absolute madness. And you just find... I mean, I found myself, I think, on the Sunday night having some, like, psychic reading in the middle of a weird fairground, um, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, those kind of things um, that happen are really amazing. There was also a brilliant venue called Sisterhood, which was a female-only um, uh, bar and disco, which is Brill. And then you've NYC Download, Block Night. Look, it's just... It's never ending. But so. it feels like, for me, when I look in, it's people are doing things because they want to do something good rather than for any other reason it's like let's do something great yeah and and you know the acts take a huge drop in their fees as well I mean Emily Eva said before that I think the likes of uh, Ed Sheeran took 10% of his fee you know they don't have the millions and millions to get to offer people so people are really there because it is um, well you know it's it's very good for people's career as well and, and very good publicity and obviously the BBC do fantastic coverage but at the same time you're being we'll part pay, we'll pay it in exposure yeah, <laughs> but you're being part of something that's bigger um, than the average so Glastow's brilliant and shout out to the uh, great Irish crew who are camped next to myself and my girlfriend Sarah who announced in the middle of the night that they love the podcast so oh, nice oh my god stop it yeah very nice so thank you for were that. they trying to get some booze off here or something <laughs> no, I don't think so <laughs> I think they were just being sent so Andre, what were your favourite bits mine are a bit less extensive than that <laughs> Um, first up is Creation Brent Thomas. Um, Create is um, Brent Thomas's where they bring loads of 
upcoming Irish designers into the store and give them the platform but also the commercial uh, viability to sell their products in their department store so it's really good for highlighting some upcoming talent and and they also have their winner from the NCAD graduate show they go in as well so it's, it's a really good platform for Irish fashion and I think we always have to keep going back to Irish fashion and also a shout out to Natalie Beacoman who made my uh, bridesmaids dress for this weekend she's amazing and the dress oh my god it's so amazing pictures will be released with the podcast no they won't um, then the other thing was my own secret plug um, is Renaissance so this is an exhibition in the National Gallery brought to you by Tropical Popical I am so excited about it it is one of the favourite things I've ever done um, and it's uh, it's to close off a collaboration we've had for the last 12 months. So each month uh, the Nail Bar has reacted art- artistically to either an opening exhibition or the collection within the National Gallery by creating nail art that we then do in the National Gallery each w- month. And this is an exhibition um, through a mixed medium. So we're not just doing nails. We have uh, we did a fashion shoot with all Irish designers and Irish stylists, etc. We did um, some more detailed um, fine art shots. We we're going to be doing live screen printing with Jill and Jill um, of fine art prints and sweaters. We're going to there's just going to be so much, and I just think it's really interesting for me because um, not just because it's my brand, but I love to see where high art and what could be considered low art can meet and if there is a place for that to happen um, and where there is can be a lot of snobbery because I think last year when we announced the collaboration some absolute dozantes in the Irish Examiner was like what next Love Island in the Irish Museum like fuck off for a start <laughs> but uh, so for me I think it really is um, I hate elitism in general, but I love to be able to bring this um, kind of collaboration to the National Gallery and to open up what a wonderful National Gallery we have and um, get, I suppose, a different audience in there to see the collection that's in there. It's just, it's and a really... Look, look at you having an exhibition in the National Gallery. That is phenomenal. It's all right, isn't it? You and Caravaggio. <laughs> we have Caravaggio. The girl, oh my God. I obviously, not obviously, but I don't do nail art. But the girls have recreated Caravaggio's on nails. It is the most intensely, awe, like it makes me awestruck that they have this talent that's overlooked a lot of the time because they're nail artists. So I just love elevating what they do to another level. Absolutely brilliant. It's fab. And that's it. Now I feel like I understand the facts of our corporate tax rate better and the Apple tax case. And I think what was really interesting about Dara, who was really kind of delivering the facts very well there, is that little position that the Irish government is in, that the best case scenario would be if the Irish government and Apple loses the appeal and then they can just be like, oh, we stood by you. We're so sound. We love you, you companies and we're always going to be here for you and have your back, but also get 14 billion euro. So I think that might be a little, I mean, I'd like to think that that was a strategic thing by the Irish government. I don't think it maybe is as much. I'd say they're probably just really super scared that um, multinational companies, particularly American companies, would, would leave. And as Dara was saying, like if a fifth of our entire workforce is directly employed by US multinationals then you know it's um, a major thing but of course the ethics of the of the entire scenario are a different question right it's like you know should these you know multi-billion euro companies be paying a lower tax rate than the average teacher or nurse or something I mean obviously that's ethically reprehensible in my opinion what do you think Andrea? I think Personally, it's human nature to try and avoid paying as much or as little tax as possible. Like even when you're filing your tax returns, you're like putting in as much to take away from what you you owe. And I think that's fundamentally built into you as a person, which then means if you're a capitalist multinational, you're going to be like, how can I save this 20 million billion gazillion amount. Um, Does that make it right or wrong? I don't think so, but I think it's hard to get away from the human nature side of that, even though 
tax as a fundamental um, situation creates our society and how we live. So I think there's there's my like socialist side and then there's my as a business owner going, oh, but I don't want to have to pay like every month pay this wad of money out for like absolutely no reason to me, I suppose it feels like. Yeah, but like, you know, Apple and Facebook and, you know, Twitter are paying a lower rate than you are in Tropical Popical. Absolute dicks. (laughs) I take it all back. Well, there we have it. (laughs) That's my take on tax. (laughs) Let's have something. Get in the sea, shall we? Yes. Oh, my God. The sheer audacity of this week's Get in the Sea and... uh, I always try and bring at least one Kardashian reference into the podcast every week, much to Una's dismay. Um, But this week it is Kim and her naming of her shapewear brand to Kimono. Um, And we were kind of, I was like, like the absolute cheek of her. Why would she do that? And obviously um, it's like, did she do it for the publicity? Because now everyone's talking about her shapewear. Exhibit A, us on our United Ireland podcast. Um, But when you're doing things, no matter if it's for the publicity or out of ignorance or out of like, hey, I just like the name. Um, If you have the head of Kyoto writing you letters going, please come and visit us and see our culture and why you shouldn't absolutely name your brand this. You have to be like, you're an absolute Dosahontas. Like she has to get it. Like she has to get in the sea. Cop on. And she has said she did do um, a series of tweets saying that her uh, business is all about inclusivity and respect and everything so she will not be naming the brand Kimono anymore she's looking for a new name Suggestions on a postcard Or maybe she should call it Get in the Sea (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome Kim (laughs) We love you We need you We want you patreon.com forward slash United Ireland do you like this podcast do you want to support it please say and not just that but if we want to do all the little fun things that we want to do outside it like our gorge little Dublin video we do need uh, the money to do that so like if you do want to support us please make that step to log on to the website and pledge your support with a bit of cash thank you this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and a castaway me this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan there's Glastonbury raising its head what (laughs) Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media Susie Bennett helps us out thanks to Crystal Clear for our music Sarah Fox for our design and you for listening and all of our gorgeous Patreon supporters you can find links to all of our socials on our website unitedirelandpodcast.com and if you're enjoying listening do let us know social currency is as important to us as financial currency that's an absolute lie give us some cash on our Patreon account this week's tuna chicken roll um, I was saying it's quite a slow jam but with the sunny weather you can get away with it it's still a disco classic Angie Stone wish I didn't miss you We've been Una Mullally and Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was Cork. Oh, we were meant to do that together. And that, that was, was Cork. Cork. Langer. Ooh.